Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Moses has been uh, reminding the people of Israel who they are, uh, where they've come from, what God has done for them, and bringing them to the very brink of the promised land. And now we have in these verses before us today a very, very personal interaction between the Lord and Moses where where Moses pleads with the Lord to go into the land to see that good and spacious land that the Lord is giving to his people as an inheritance but there on the brink Moses Moses himself is not allowed to enter in It's a passage full of disappointment, bitter disappointment. And and yet, at the end of the day, it's a passage which I think speaks a profound word of encouragement to God's people today. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. This is the word of the living God. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan that good hill country, and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Some of you will probably know the name William Sapphire, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, presidential speechwriter, perhaps most well known for his columns in the New York Times on language for some, something like 30 years. He's also the author of uh, a bunch of books, one of them titled Lend Me Your Ear, an 1,100-page doorstopper, really, which is a collection of what he believes to be the best, the greatest speeches of all time, ranging from Cicero all the way to the likes of Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. In his preface, uh, William Sapphire, preface to Lend Me Your Ear, he, he asks the question, What makes a great speech great? 
what sets it apart from a good speech. And in the end, he says, what makes a great speech great is that it is given in the context of emotional turmoil. It's given in the context of emotional turmoil. And of course, there's more to it than that. He recognizes there has to be form, there has to be content, there has to be uh, delivery. But he says, this is what makes great speeches uh, set apart from good speeches. They're made on an occasion of emotional turmoil. This is exactly what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. It is one of the greatest, if you like, speeches of all times. It was delivered not only at this pivotal moment in uh, the life of God's people as they were about to enter the promised land, but it is also on an occasion of emotional turmoil and bitter disappointment for Moses. It's a reminder to us that the book of Deuteronomy is not simply a book of, of laws. It's, it's not merely a, a book of rules. It's a farewell address of a dying prophet. It, it is a speech which is embedded in the life of this man who, who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, through the part of the sea, through the wilderness wanderings, 40 years, and all the way to the brink of the promised land, to the very edge of their inheritance. But then, he was denied access. All those years, all those miles traveled, and he can't go in. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would have felt like for for Moses, try to imagine you know, traveling somewhere for a large portion of your life and overcoming incredible obstacles. You're, you're headed somewhere and you're almost there. So close, you know, you can see it and almost taste it. And when you're on the very edge of crossing in, you can't go in. I think it's hard for us to, to fathom the the disappointment. He's come all of this way and, and then he's refused entrance. This is, this is Moses. This is, this is the man of God. This is the guy who spoke face to face with God as a friend speaks to another friend. And I think that, that this passage therefore raises questions, at least it did for me, is as I studied it, why? Why is this passage in the Bible? Why has God preserved this intimate interaction between himself and Moses for us? What, what is this story meant to teach us? With those kind of questions in mind, I want to consider and explore this, this emotional and agonizing episode in, in two simple parts. And as I said at the start, I think all of the agony in this passage ends up giving us a profound encouragement. There's two parts to the passage. The first part, Moses' request in verses 23 through 25. And then the second part, the Lord's response in verses 26 through 29. So let's consider Moses' request first of all. In, in verse 23... 
Moses introduces his basic request. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time. What, what time? When Israel had just defeated those Amorite kings. These first initial uh, victories for God's people as they made their way into the, the promised land that God was giving to them. So, so how are you feeling if that's you? You're, you're riding high, you're excited, but then what comes next? Bitter disappointment for Moses. And notice that Moses isn't just expressing a, uh, a preference here. He's not saying, you know, God, if, if, if it would be okay with you, I, I'd like it to be this way, but no big deal. No, he is, he is pleading with God. He is begging God. It's strong language used here in these verses, expressing a deep desire and a profound longing. He's saying, don't, don't leave me on the outside. Please let me go in and see the good land. And perhaps, perhaps you know what that's like. Perhaps you know what it's like to pour out your heart to God and for that prayer to be, remain unanswered. Or perhaps for the answer to be no, to ask for something again and again and again and, and not get it, to bring your request to God, something you desperately desire, but the answer is no and you know what that kind of disappointment feels like then for Moses. Well, in verse 24, Moses goes on to say, Lord God, you have, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Now, what I'm going to do is press the pause button for a minute on Moses' request and consider his words here and the man who is speaking these words. O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Now, at this point, Moses is, we, we know from the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is 120 years old. That's a long time. And Moses, is, Moses has seen a lot. He has seen the, the Lord do a lot of marvelous and wondrous things. And yet he says, you have only begun to show me your greatness. It reminds me of the words found in the book of Job. These are but the outskirts of your glory. Although Moses, think about this. Although Moses had watched as God performed astonishing signs and wonders that humbled Egypt, the greatest world superpower at the time, Although Moses had seen the waters part so that Israel could pass through on dry ground. Although Moses had seen the Lord provide for Israel in the wilderness, bringing water forth from the rock. He says, the Lord's just getting started. God has only begun to show his mighty hand. And, and Moses, you see, he, he, wanted to see, he wanted to see more of the Lord's greatness and power. And you know, friends, I think there's a tendency that some of us may have, especially 
perhaps when we reach a certain age or we've, we've read a number of theology books to think, uh, I, I've arrived. I don't need to see anymore. I don't need to understand anymore. To give the impression that we've seen it all or know all there is to know about God. A number of years ago, we had a Sunday school class on the attributes of God, and it was somebody who's, who's not here, so it's none of you, okay? Somebody said to me about that Sunday school class, I don't, I don't need to come to that class because I've studied the doctrine of God enough. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's certainly not God, uh, Moses' attitude here. Look at, it, at, the, at the ripe old age of 120 years, He knows that he is nothing more than a theological novice in the school of God's greatness and glory, which is incomprehensible. And he wants to see more. One of the things to understand, I think, is that in the book of Deuteronomy in particular, and really in the entirety of the Old Testament in in general, God's greatness is closely linked with his power. And in the Old Testament, God demonstrates, he manifests his power by redeeming his people. And think about the Exodus story. What what is it meant to communicate to us? When God hears the cries of a slave people who are held in bondage by the greatest superpower of the day. And what is the message of all of those plagues in Egypt? The message is that God's power is seen in his saving and redeeming and delivering his people out of bondage and slavery and manifesting his power over the false gods of Egypt. That's the message of part of the book of Exodus. And it's the connection that Moses is making here when he asks for for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. None, None can compare to you, he's saying. God's greatness is seen in his mighty deeds to save and deliver his people. And Moses knew that God was just getting started. There was more to be seen, more of God's greatness displayed in his strength as he saved his people for himself. You know, it's interesting to to compare what Moses says here in verse 24. Many commentators throughout church history have done to to see these words parallel alongside of Luke's words in the beginning of his sequel to his gospel, the book of Acts. So Luke wrote the the gospel of Luke about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of of Jesus. And then he wrote the book of Acts as a follow-up of what the risen Christ now continues to do in his ascended glory. And so he begins his sequel to his gospel in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. Luke describes his gospel as all that Jesus began 
to do. All that he began to do and teach. And that applies there's, there's more, right? He, he, was just, he was just getting started. And, and his greatness, his power, his mighty hand to save was displayed in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts from one point of view traces the greatness of God set on display in the acts of the risen Christ through his spirit-empowered church. And we can say like Moses, and still we have only begun to see his greatness and his mighty hand. There's more to come. That's why we use that passage in Hebrews chapter 9 as our confession of faith, thinking about the fact that he appeared the first time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then he's going to appear again, not to deal with sin, but to save all those who eagerly wait for him. We will see the mighty hand of God on display in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's more to come because we worship a God whose greatness is unsearchable. And so, focusing again on Moses' request, you see what he's, you see what he's doing. He he humbles himself before the Lord, calling himself the Lord's servant. He, he exalts God. He extols his greatness and his power. And then he pleads with the Lord in verse 25, Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. Please let me go over and see it. Lebanon was the farthest reaches of the land. And so Moses is saying, please let me see the whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle. I I want to see it all. But God says no. He says no to Moses. Even though it seems entirely reasonable, and even though this is a remarkably God-centered prayer, right? Moses is not... He's not trying to butter God up here. He's speaking the truth about God and he's pouring out his heart's desire to see the land. But God says no. He refuses Moses' request. That takes us to the second part of this passage, the Lord's response in verses 26 through 29. Look at verse 26 where Moses explains why he was not permitted to enter He says, but the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. What's going on there? Well, the Lord was, Moses is saying the Lord was angry with him, the leader of God's people, because of God's people. Moses experienced God's anger because of the people of Israel. Now, what are are we to make of this? Well, first of all, there's a a closeness here between Moses and God that that I think only adds to the pain and agony that Moses must have felt. He's He's been so close to God throughout all of these years and there's this intimacy in the way that they communicate. The Lord's enough from you. Don't speak to me of this matter again. Moses and God are close, but Moses is very clear in verse 26 that the Lord was angry with him. He says, 
because of you. Because of the people of Israel. Moses already made this point back in chapter 1 verse 37. He'll make the same point again in chapter 4 verse 21. Say the Lord was angry with me because of you. He makes this point again and again. And to understand this, I think we've got to do, we've got to do some careful thinking and investigation here. Because after all, the full story makes it clear that Moses is not an innocent victim here. Moses is not an innocent victim here. So how do we make sense of this? We've got to, we've got to do a little bit of theology. We begin with this idea. Moses was not... An innocent victim. As the Lord explains in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 51 and following. uh, Moses was excluded from entering into the land because he broke faith with the Lord. And did not treat the Lord as holy before the people at the waters of Meribah. And that sad occasion is detailed more in Numbers chapter 20, which not only describes how the people grumbled and complained against the Lord in the wilderness, but also how Moses struck the rock to provide the people with water instead of simply speaking to the rock as he was commanded. That's very, it's very tempting for me to bring Paul's description of this rock as Christ into our thoughts for a few minutes. But setting that aside, let's stick with what Numbers 20 says. Moses broke faith with the Lord and did not treat the Lord as holy before the people. And so Moses was not an innocent victim. He, he failed to trust and honor the Lord as holy at Meribah But it's also true when he says that he suffered because of the people's sin and rebellion. Both of these things are true at the same time. He he, he wasn't an innocent victim, but the Lord was angry with him because of the people. After all, if the Exodus, think about this, if the Exodus generation, that first generation that came out of Egypt had gone into the land as they were commanded to do, there would have never been this incident at the waters of of Meribah. That sad incident would have never taken place. He would have never broken faith and dishonored the Lord before the people there. Instead of wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses would have spent his final years inside the promised land. And it must have been really frustrating. I mean, it must have been annoying. It must have been painful to think about what could have been. And so Moses is not wrong when he says, The Lord was angry with me because of you. He he suffered because of the sin and the rebellion of God's people he was called to lead. God was angry with Moses because of the people. And in this sense, I think he clearly points us to Jesus. Though Jesus differs from Moses in a crucial way. Jesus is the only truly innocent leader of God's people. 
And yet, he still endured God's anger because of you. Because of me. Because of our sin and our rebellion. Jesus was truly innocent and he truly suffered not because of anything he had done, but because of what we've done. Think about it. In in a moment of crisis, right, at the waters of Meribah, Moses, leader of God's people, broke faith with the Lord and did not honor the Lord as holy before the people. And in in contrast to that, think about in that crisis that we call the Garden of Gethsemane, one greater than Moses kept faith and said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus resolved to suffer for his people, keeping faith. And even in the depths of his suffering on Calvary's cross, we know the Lord Jesus had Psalm 22 in mind. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what the speaker goes on to say in the next, very next verses? Yet you are holy. I think, I really th- I think this is the main point of this passage. I think this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. This good news of Jesus, our innocent mediator who suffered for us. This is why this interaction between Moses and the Lord has been preserved for us in Holy Scripture because Moses, as the leader of Israel, anticipates one who's greater than himself. Let's just follow the story for a second. Think think about the history of Israel. Moses would be succeeded by Joshua. We know that the whole book of Deuteronomy is really about that transition of leadership and Moses passing on the baton to Joshua who will lead the people into the land. But as Hebrews says, not even Joshua gave God's people the rest that was promised to them. And ultimately Moses and Joshua and all the leaders of the Old Testament would be succeeded by Jesus, the most perfect person who has ever lived, who endured God's anger because of God's people. And you see, because of who he is and because he's truly innocent, because he has clean hands, there is no need for another to ever step in and finish the work. He is able to begin it and bring it to completion, setting on display the greatness of God's mighty power to save. The very thing Moses praises God for is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There is no Joshua to succeed Jesus because Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. He is the one appointed by God to suffer for his people and he is the one who leads his people into their full and final rest in a good and spacious land. And so just as Moses was charged to strengthen and encourage Joshua, I think these words are meant to encourage and strengthen God's people today. Reminding us that Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, you will not fail to make it in. 
You won't be left on the outside looking in. You, you will know eternal rest. You will dwell in a good land in which the Lord himself dwells in your midst. Because Jesus, our Joshua, shall put you in possession of it. And I hope this strengthens and encourages today, especially those of us who, who can identify with Moses with the struggle of unanswered prayer. You know, if you're discouraged because God has refused some deep desire of your heart, this passage reminds us today, don't, don't forget, don't, don't forget what he has given you freely and fully in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that his settled purpose is to give you not less, but more than you can possibly think or imagine or ask. It's it's worth noticing that that although the Lord refused the first part of Moses' request, which was to enter into the land, he he granted the, the second part, which was to see. And so after the Lord gives Moses permission to see this breathtaking vision of the land from Pisgah and all of its vast expanse, he he commands Moses in verse 28 saying, But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. In his commentary on Deuteronomy, Uh, Peter Craigie says that the whole book of Deuteronomy is evidence that Moses obeyed this charge, this command given to him to encourage and strengthen. The whole book is evidence that Moses was obedient to God's command to, to strengthen Joshua, to help Joshua to succeed to encourage him, even though he wouldn't be permitted to enter in, and, 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 and even though he faced his own impending death, right? With death on the horizon, Moses sought to strengthen and encourage Joshua and the people by calling them to choose that which is truly life. That's the message of Deuteronomy. Choose the Lord who is your life. And once again, I think this should draw our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if, if, if William Sapphire was, was right in what he said about great speeches, great speeches being those that are offered in the context of emotional turmoil, then surely there is no greater speech than the words Jesus spoke during his own farewell discourse. We call it the upper room discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. Remember all the words that he spoke to them there. Now John sets off in chapter 13 by saying, Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Right? Think about this. He, he knew that he was going to die. But what did he do? He sought to encourage and strengthen his disciples. What did he do? He he got down on his knees as a humble servant and washed his disciples' dirty feet. What did he do? He said, do not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also 
In me, in my house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. He was strengthening and encouraging his own, the true Joshua, who would go in and really bring God's people into possession of their promised inheritance. Remember what he said to the thief on the cross. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. You won't be left outside. You will be brought in to your everlasting rest. And so, dear friends, as we look at this maybe peculiar passage and wonder why is this here, at the end I hope you see that a passage full of disappointment really does speak a word of encouragement to God's people. Let's let's be encouraged by our innocent leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for us and who shall put us in possession of God's promised inheritance to his people. And if if that's what we should take away from this, then I suppose a concluding exhortation to all of us this morning should be to set our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Please pray with me. Our Lord Jesus, we, we praise you and thank you for your willingness to come and to suffer for your people, though you had known no sin, you became sin for us, that we might be pardoned and that we might be brought near to God and brought into his presence. And we thank you for what you have done uh, to bring that about. And we are grateful for the promise that as we trust in you, you You bring us into possession of all of the promises given to God's people for all of the promises of God are yes and amen in you. And so I pray that each one of us would set our eyes upon you and place our trust in you as the leader of a new nation, a new people, a new humanity heading to their eternal home in the presence of God in a new heavens and new earth. And we pray all of these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.